Do you want to know how to get into Johns Hopkins School of Medicine? Are you wondering what its curriculum is really like? How is it adapted to COVID? Tune in. Today you'll hear from its Assistant Dean for Admissions and Student Affairs. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 429th episode of Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for joining me. I'm actually taking a week off for family time. As a result, I decided to air an encore of our most popular medical school admissions podcast so far in 2021, and it is What Med School Applicants Must Know About Johns Hopkins, my interview with Paul White, Assistant Dean for Admissions at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. It actually took place last fall, but has been very popular this year, so again, we decided to air it. It's an excellent time for this podcast now. Many of you are knee-deep in secondaries, including secondaries for Johns Hopkins. Others are starting to think ahead to next year's cycle. In either case, hearing from one of the most experienced and respected med school admissions directors at one of the top medical schools in the world can only benefit you if you are applying to medical school. For those of you thinking ahead to med school interviews or perhaps already having received an interview invitation, lucky you, I'd like to invite you to accept its next webinar, how to Nail Your med Medical School Interviews. This will be presented by Sydney Foote, who has been helping med school applicants nail their interviews since 2001. We expect a packed house for the webinar, so sign up today at accept.com slash 429 webinar. Again, that's accept.com slash 429 webinar. Whether you are applying this cycle or next, I hope that you are enjoying a wonderful summer, and thanks for listening to what med school applicants must know about Johns Hopkins. Today's guest, Assistant Dean for Admissions at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, Paul White, attended Yale for undergrad, Georgetown for his law degree, but has worked in admissions both undergrad and med since 1988. Since 2012, he has served the applicant community as the Assistant Dean for Admissions at Johns Hopkins. He was last on Admissions Straight Talk in 2016, and I'm thrilled he found the time to join us again now. Paul, welcome back to Admissions Straight Talk. Thank you, Linda. It's a pleasure to be back. Okay. Can we just start out by you giving us an overview of the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine program, focusing on some more distinctive elements? Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, I want to make a correction. Oh. I've actually been in admissions since 1979. Oh, my goodness. Whoa. And, and then I took a few years off to get my JD and went ah, back to admissions. After I see. In 1986. So I've been in admissions almost nonstop since 1979. Wow. Okay. Well, I don't know. So I, didn't, I got some dates wrong on your uh, LinkedIn profile, but uh, well, thank you for the correction. Wow. I'm, okay. I'm a little older than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got you got into admissions when I got my MBA. So, <laughs> right. But, well, uh, well, thank you. Oh, no problem. Well, Johns Hopkins has a, a wonderful educational program. Um, you know, Hopkins is one of the schools that really pioneered prerequisites for medical school. And uh, the Flexner Report, which came out in 1910, uh, Sid Hopkins was, was one of the schools that did it right. And we've never sat on our laurels. Uh, so we're always looking at, um, are, are we keeping current? Are we um, 
teaching students what they need to know to work with patients. So a few years ago, I will say easily 12 years ago now, Hopkins uh, completely revised the curriculum and made it more focused on the social determinants of disease. So we incorporate that throughout the curriculum uh, when our students come to Hopkins. Um, you have a course that begins right after orientation that focuses on healthcare disparities. And uh, these are, um, there are several intersession courses you'll have between the major components like anatomy and so forth that you're studying. But the very first one focuses on healthcare disparities, brings in someone from the community and talks about their issues and so forth. Uh, we also have our students do an ambulatory longitudinal clerkship later in their first year, which gets them out into the community um, and working alongside a, a physician who works with patients from underserved um, uh, populations. Uh, and then continuing with that, we in integrate throughout the curriculum, the social sciences, uh, ethics and public health and interprofessional education. Uh, we give our students opportunities to do research. Many of them have already had research prior to coming to Hopkins. And although it's not required, I would say easily 95, 96% have had research prior to their matriculation. But by the time they graduate from Hopkins, easily 99% will have uh, research and nearly 99% will have a publication by the time they graduate from Hopkins. Impressive. So. Uh, that has really strengthened the profile of our students, which was pretty strong <laughs> to yeah. begin with, but uh, it has really made our students that much more uh, attuned to what's going on in the world and ready to address it using scientific methodology. Okay, fascinating. Okay, so when you talk about a longitudinal ambulatory, uh, I guess, yeah. right, can you, what does that actually mean in terms of what are they doing? Well, they're, they're, it's more, think of it as advanced clinical shadowing. Okay. They're actually in the community working with a physician, but rather than being a pre-medical student, they're actually medical students. And it is something in which they are evaluated on as part of the, the uh, curriculum as well. So are they seeing, let's say, a patient, the same patient suffering from diabetes, for example, or, or hypertension? Depending on, depending on who the uh, physician is, is seeing as part of the clerkship. That's why it, it, it's, it's a several weeks rather than right. a two-time event, exactly. Okay, and just uh, moving on from there, what's a common misconception about Johns Hopkins Medical that you would like to dispel? Well, that, um, the only thing we're interested in is research. Uh, that, okay. that, is, that is a um, misconception that can uh, impact uh, how someone is viewed in the admissions process. Uh, one of the things that we're charged with, even though I'm not a physician, I, I'm a lawyer by training, um, I want to make sure that the students who come to Hopkins have a, a strong commitment and interest in patient care. So we look for students who've had uh, meaningful patient interactions prior to applying, not something they hope to get once they're in medical school. And if they haven't had that, they've had research, that's great. But uh, the research has to, to involve some type of patient care. And most of our students who are successful in our admissions process have had significant clinical interaction. And, and that goes well beyond shadowing. I'm talking about actually interacting with patients as, as sometimes as scribes, but oftentimes 
as uh, actually in a position where uh, they interact on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Right. That's that is interesting because of course it is the school is known for its for its research. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah. Okay. Great. I'm really mm -hmm. glad that you raised it. All have interest in patient care and how right. it would benefit from the research that they're doing. It's funny, you know, every so while we obviously get different kinds of applicants, right? So we have PhD applicants who contact us and say, I want to get a PhD, but I don't have any research. And then we have med school applicants who say, I want to become a doctor, but I don't have clinical exposure. <laughs> it's like, you know, you gotta... Right, well, that's why it's, it's fortunate we'll get the students who have both, you know, or the, yes. the ones who are successful. Let's put it right, that. that's a good way to put it. Now, you're, you know, you were giving the overview of the, of the program a minute ago, and um, obviously early clinical exposure and clinical exposure throughout the four years is really important. It's a critical element in the curriculum. How are, how are students getting that in the current environment, meaning COVID? Uh, well, you know, that's a, a great question, Linda, and certainly the uh, third and fourth year students had to pause uh, in the spring, but they were getting right back into the, the uh, uh, clinical um, uh, component in, I would say, early July, if not slightly okay. early. Uh, so the, the, they didn't miss a beat. The first and second year students, it's a little different for them, and it's more controlled um, you know, with the standardized patient program instead. Okay. But the, uh, the upper class students, the third and fourth year students, are certainly in the, in the groups. Okay, all right. Now let's turn to Johns Hopkins secondary application. It's sure. a thorough secondary asking, I think five essays if I have it straight, right? Uh, really short. We may have added a new one uh, dealing with wonder, the issue of wonder. Sounds like a fun one. Um, it was written by a, a team involving a bioethicist. Oh, all right. I'm thinking of a book, Wonder. It's actually a children's book. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's, it's, a, wonderful, no, it's a wonderful book. It has to be a wonderful, wonderful children's book. Well, I, I majored in history and literature at Yale, but I focused on 19th century. <laughs> yes, no, no, this is, this is I think, 2000s, actually. I but it's I a wonderful, wonderful children's book. Okay. Um, in terms of when you examine the set secondaries or you evaluate the secondary application, what are you attempting to glean from the secondary that the primary doesn't provide? That, I think it's an excellent question because th that's really the heart of what we do. We're looking for people who will be the best fit and you don't always get that from the, the uh, primary. You get some of it from their personal statement. I mean, that's why there is a personal statement, frankly. But uh, our, it's, it is our questions that will impart, hopefully, impart to the applicant what we value. And one of our questions deals with adversity. Another question deals with not being, um, was there a time when you were not in the majority? And, um, and what, what interest do you have what, you know, what kind of medicine you're interested in? And it's not that we are looking for anything conclusive, but we want to know, have they ever dealt with patients? So they have at least an idea. And it, it's, they need to spend a lot of time answering those questions. I can tell you that <clears throat> there are students who we will invite to interview. And I do interviews as well. I screen and I'm one of the interviewers. And uh, I'll say, you know what? I think this person really blew off uh, X question, and and that, that that will lead to much discussion, 
which oh, I that question. <laughs> that question. So, you know, the, I, I think Paul's right, or I think you're being harsh, or well, it's there, but where is it? You know, what's the answer? So I, I think people, you know, I've had applicants tell me I love your questions. Uh, the the uh, the uh, essay questions on the secondary, and you know, we have some questions in our interview that get at what we value as well. Does John Hopkins have any automatic screening of secondaries? No, not at all. Um, it, it would make life easier, I think, but as long as I've been with Hopkins, we have never uh, done automatic screening. Every application is reviewed. Uh, I probably read 40% of the applications, but everyone is read by two different people. Okay. Um, we actually were able to, we, we made some major changes in our, our review process uh, this past year, not knowing that there'd be a pandemic, and we decided to go ahead and plow through with it, and it has not been easy, I can tell you that, Linda, but, you know, we're, we're still on track, uh, and but this is a crazy year, and maybe we can talk about this, but our applications are up almost 25 percent. Oh, wow. Our applications, right. Well, they're up nationally about 17 percent to medical okay. school. Ours, All right. Even among our peers, our, 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 our uh, increase is outpacing those so it's been really interesting, and um, um, the deadline just passed for the primary, but the secondary one is, is not until November first. But yeah. we're we're going through, <clears throat> excuse me, every application, and I can tell you, uh, I doubled the number of screeners, and these are people who who've been veterans of the admissions committee, but they've never had to screen, and there's there are three of us who are screeners out of a, a, of a dozen. Who've been on this committee for I will you know venture a guess twenty years or more, and I'm one of them. You know, so yeah. So when you start, you tell you're screening. Are you screening like just to see who's going to be considered for the interview, or do you actually? Yes, oh, we yes to be considered for an interview. So we call them screeners, and uh, you know that's the first review. We we screen every applicant who submits a verified AMCAS application from whom we receive the secondary. So we don't just base it on their primary, it's, it's on the completed application. And we don't just, you know, we truly use and believe in a holistic review process. So that includes the um, MCAT, as well as the academic record, meaning the coursework they've done, as well as their performance or GPA in those courses. But it, 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 it means that there are no cutoffs um, uh, there are students who uh, I will say no to, but the other reviewer says yes, and it, it automatically goes to a third reviewer, okay? And majority wins, you know, so, and, and I know I've seen a couple students where I really wondered, is this someone we should be bringing in? But you know what, they saw something there that you know, I may have seen it, but I just thought, but um, let's see how the person does in an interview. An, an interview doesn't mean you're in. Yeah. <laughs> so. no, that's true. It's a little question. But, now, right. in, in addition to the two screening before you get to the interview, I understand that any student invited to interview at Johns Hopkins will have two interviews. Is that correct? That's correct. Everyone has, has to have two interviews. One, uh, and both are uh, interviewers are members of the admissions committee. The one is always a faculty member, and the other is a medical student. And oh. the medical students are actually uh, selected by their by the rising fourth years to represent the entire student body. So we have 20 medical students on the admissions committee. Ooh, and, um, they are terrific. They're typically campus leaders. 
and, they, and the, the campus leaders and they have time and they're medical students and they also have time for this. Not only that, they, they're interviewing for residency themselves. They're going That's true. Yeah. And yet they're able to do it. And, and I, I always talk to them and see how they're doing. And they'll say, you know, this has been really incredible and has helped me with my residency interviews. You know, so. I'm sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, when again, given COVID, are there other activities for the invited students? <laughs> um, all virtual. <laughs> at yeah, this of point. course. Um, we, um, we were debating how, how to interact with the students. If we were in Baltimore, they would be meeting with, well, first of all, they'd be taking a tour of one of our principal housing residents called 929, uh, which is run by a corporation, but um, that owns numerous hotels that you've heard of, but uh, they actually own the, the building or maybe we're the owner, but they manage it for us. It's 23-story tower that they met. They, uh, they give a tour, uh, but since we can't do that, I guess we can at some point. But we're not doing that. But it, and then they would typically meet with me on Thursdays and with the woman who is our director who reports to me on Fridays. So on um, for both days now, we send out a video of me welcoming them, which was interesting because I pretty much did it in one take, and uh, it's just 10 minutes giving a. a high-level overview of what they could expect. And we also did a uh, PowerPoint presentation um, uh, present that from our financial aid office, which I think it, they're delighted to have. And then on the actual interview date, so that those are, that's anyone who's been invited to interview. And on the actual interview date, um, on Thursdays, I'm on the computer all day and they meet with me and I give them you know, some last minute things, uh, housekeeping, details and um, but I tell them if you have any questions and I serve as the traffic controller for Thursday interviewees so I'm typically on a little before nine our time and as late as five o'clock in the afternoon wow that sounds like a full day it is uh, yeah. the, well you know I, I've been surprised even though it is uh, eating up my entire day I'm able to to review applications online so I'll, I'll do that in between what you know while people are doing their interviews i'm like oh yeah. i've got 45 minutes before yeah <laughs> right and i'm sure you can review an application pretty quickly yeah i can all actually. your experience you know. almost 40 years right yeah. yeah yeah now per msar johns hopkins medical received in 2019 6016 applications and i'm gonna you just said that you're up i think you said 22 percent. so that's 20, 20, well, right now, 24 plus. So we're at just <laughs> under 7,000 applications. Wow. Okay. Last year, so that, that was the, the 2019 probably was two years ago. Right. Yeah. And last year, we actually saw a decrease and we were puzzled about that. It was around 5,600 applications. And this year, we're over 66,900 oh. right now. And they're still being processed, the ones that met the deadline. So we wow. made it 7,000. Okay. class 120. Yeah, that kind of is my question. Okay, so you're you got all these apps coming in. You're up dramatically, and I think in 2018 you were only at 47.66. So even that year you saw a big big leap. And again, 2019 numbers that I was looking at said that you interviewed 657 applicants and matriculated 120. So obviously, when you get to the interview stage, statistically at least, your chances of acceptance go up dramatically. Yeah, you go up dramatically. Well, last year we actually cut the number of interviews. To about 574 for the MD program. Okay. 
roughly 90 for the MD PhD. Um, so this year will be, uh, my guess is it'll be similar to last year, approximately. Really? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I know I've talked to some of her peers to see what they were going to do because they're experiencing an increase as well. And one school said uh, they felt like they needed to increase the number of interviews. Well, frankly, we could take uh, out of the 574 that we interview, we could easily admit, you know, 300 of those. So I don't see the need to increase the interview numbers, but that, but keep my eye on who's accepting our offer, you know, with the, um, right. the, uh, the, the new process where you have in your uh, choose your medical school tool, uh, yeah. where you have to uh, plan to enroll or commit to enroll. Uh, the first year of that, Linda, I, I, that may have been the year you and I spoke. Um, no, I think, it was, everyone, I think it was just last year, the year before. Oh, it's been after right. we spoke. Oh, right. So the first year that that happened, because no one knew what that meant. Everyone was committing to enroll. I think and something like 96% of our students committed to enroll by April 30th. This right. past year was the second year, and they got a little wiser. And I, I would venture to guess maybe 50% committed to enroll. Uh -huh. and others plan to enroll. Now you can only plan to once you commit to enroll, you can't stay on a waiting list. Right. You can't change change your use that. Okay. And a lot of them did that. So we actually went a little further into our waiting list because we weren't sure who was going to come. You know, so yeah. money played an issue more so last year than previous year. But um who's to say what will happen this year? I mean, as long as I've been doing it, there hasn't been a typical year. Well, one thing for sure is that this won't be it. <laughs> no, there's certainly one. one. <laughs> if there is one, it's not this one. Right. Um, but that, that still gets, my, my question in all this was, especially at that first stage, okay, when you have all these applications, you have close to 7,000 applications, mm -hmm. and you're trying to get it down to 500 lucky people or 500 plus lucky people who are going to be invited to interview, how do you do it? What makes the application jump off the page for you? Or the well, applicant, I should say, what makes the applicant jump off the application page for you? Would be I, I will tell you, you know, that it, what's interesting is we have 12 very different people who are our screeners. Um, I think two people besides myself, so three of us are not physicians, two are researchers. Okay. Um, I am uh, obviously not a researcher or a physician, but I've you know, got the experience. And then everyone else is an MD, and in some cases, MD, PhD. You know, you've got surgeons, cardiologists, um, bioethicists, uh, HIV researchers. It's just a fascinating group. And I, psychiatrists, what we talk about, you know, because I only meet with them once a month. They get their files weekly yeah, from my yeah. staff, but I only meet with them once a month, but I send them emails and I track how they're doing. And I remind them that, you know, it is incredibly important that we get people who know what it means to uh, interact with patients, who can talk about why patient care is so important, why doctors have the role they have on a medical team. And um, so using that, I don't say, you know, um, these are the cutoffs or anything, but I tell them that um, our GPA for applicants and MCAT um, were X last year just for applicants. And then yeah. the people invited to interview, people admitted, and then those who matriculated. And I, I don't say, you know, you have to have a, a 3.93 to get an interview. Yeah. You do not. Yeah. You 
I don't say you have to have a 521 to get an interview, but at the same time, they know that if someone is in the 50th percentile on the MCAT, that, you know, that's not as competitive. We've got too many extremely qualified just by the numbers, but their job is to look and say, okay, um, we know when the, the, the people who come to Hopkins are campus leaders yeah. as undergraduates, because that's who they are when they come to Hopkins as well. And one of the things we think we do a good job is, is training people to be medical leaders. Um, and so we take advantage of that and look for people who've had, been in leadership positions. We also know we're, we're a great place for anyone who's interested in serving the public. That is something you can definitely do in Baltimore and because they get out in the community and we want them to be comfortable with that, familiar with that. And uh, we're a great place to learn um, that. I mean, you know, one of the things people don't realize about Hopkins, it's a great place for primary care training. Um, and we have a primary care leadership program. We know that our students who do that program will be leaders of primary care, teaching primary care, not just seeing patients, but actually teach at major academic institutions. Um, and, and, and so we, we look for people who we think are going to be these future leaders in medicine. About what percentage of the class goes into uh, the primary care specialties? It's not high enough. I mean, well, the primary care leadership track is actually something they only choose once they're at Hopkins. Okay. That is by design small, although the number has tripled since, the, since it was introduced about six years ago. But, um, you know, I would say in a class of roughly 120 graduates, maybe 12%, 14% will go into what I may think is primary care and what the uh, Department of Ed thinks of as primary care may be a little more expansive, you know. Right, right. A lot of students go into internal medicine, which some may not think of as primary care, but it really is. Yeah, that's uh, what I thought. I would think it I is. I think it is, but some people think when we're talking about primary care, we're thinking family medicine, you know, pediatrics. In it, you know, and then certain geriatrics, and that's part of the uh, the program here as well. You're going to, if, especially if you're doing the primary care leadership track, that um, you get early exposure to mentoring with all. Although you have mentoring all four years, but they have mentored um, workshops with primary care folks in uh, geriatrics, family medicine, pediatrics. Um, Let's see, internal medicine, so forth. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, is there anything that you look for in applicants today or value more in applicants today than you did, did let's say, two or five or 10 years ago? Uh, you know, I would definitely say um, knowing what type of students succeed at Hopkins. I, I, I look for people who um, have perhaps overcome challenges and are capable, they have the maturity to figure and resiliency to figure out how to make things work. You know, <clears throat> I think one of the things we do better today than we did certainly when I came to the, the medical school in 2000 is to support our students, even though we had a lot of support. When we changed our curriculum, we introduced the college system. All of our students are signed to one of four colleges that has nothing to do with your uh, intended field of medicine, or you know, some schools call them learning communities. Um, and we, the students have support throughout with uh, faculty members who serve as their mentors and advisors for all four years. And then you still have the resources of the Dean of Students Office. But we know that there are some students, um, times are different today. 
you know, they certainly are different from when you and I were in undergrad and grad school, I'm sure. Sure. And, you know, we had to be resilient. That's right. <laughs> just deal with it. That's true. That's very true. I think it was completely different. But we also didn't have the same pressures then that they have today. And, and students compare themselves to other people. And they're just, you know, we didn't have social media. Which, so we weren't able to figure out that we weren't as good as someone else, perhaps. You know, and I, and I, you know, I was no slouch, you know, just obviously where I went to college. And, and, right, right, yeah. And, and, but I remember toughing it out. Uh, yeah. Students today have a lot more pressures on them, that external pressures, let's put it that way. So we offer more support to the students with the wellness program, with, uh, uh, you know, we have a woman who works with students who encounter academic difficulties, which no, no one can think of when they come to Hopkins, but sometimes they've had to uh, overcompensate for issues when, you know, affecting their learning in college, and they've had that down pat, and then you get to medical school, and it's like a fire hydrant with the yeah. cap off, you know that, you know, so, yeah. and uh, this woman has done a great job, and it's just a, a handful of students, but that kind of support means a lot, and those are things that um, I'm not saying that we look for that in the application, but if someone is clearly um, expresses an unease with asking for help, <laughs> they're not going to get very far. <laughs> okay. no, no, you have to be able to ask for help. Yeah, you have to. You have to. And it, I know, you know, particularly if we're talking about the kind of students I think uh, we are at, at Hopkins and at other medical schools, um, it's it's difficult to asking for help. I mean, it was difficult for me. As a freshman in college, 120 years ago, whenever that was, you, know? <laughs> so, right. you learn. But you, you learn. learn. You learn to ask for help. That's right. um, yeah, but I think I think resilience is certainly a, a quality. I think that in many areas, graduate schools, medical schools, Absolutely. are looking for more in, in students. That's right. Um, it's okay to fall. It's how you pick yourself back up. Exactly, because that's what you have control of. That's right. You That's tripped. Right. You didn't have control over that. Presumably, you didn't want to fall flat on your face. But uh, how you get up and what you do after that, that you do have control over. That's right. That's right. Yeah. All right, let's go back to the application process. I mean, I could, I could talk to you about this stuff for a long time, but I, I think we have to get back to the application process. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how do you view letters of intent or correspondence from waitlisted applicants? I don't not. pay any attention to them. Okay. Otherwise, we... Yeah, you know, that's it, it. We want there to be a level playing field. Mm -hmm. And if you're interviewed, that's your shot. Okay. okay. And the okay. way we do our admissions process is that uh, we have a vote at the mm -hmm. meeting. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't even tell the admissions committee how someone is done. Uh, maybe three months later, uh, three of us will sit down and review the uh, transcript of the meetings and the, the scores. Let's put it mm -hmm. that dictates who gets in. Mm -hmm. Now, and that will dictate how many we think we can, how far we can go. We know our 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 yield will be X percent. So we sure. want not to load it up with people who were fortunate enough to be discussed earlier, because we we notify people in three rounds, um, depending on when they interview: December, end of January, end of March. And yet the percentage of acceptances is about the same relative to however many were interviewed. Let's put it that right, way. Right. And if, if they were discussed and they're placed on the waiting list, 
once we know we're going to use the waiting list, we go by their, their um, initial voting score. And an additional letter means absolutely nothing to us. So I don't welcome them at Hopkins. I, I know that's probably heresy compared to some medical schools. No, it's, it's fascinating because it's the, the schools run the gamut. They do, they do. And, and as I said, we, we want there to be a level playing field. Um, and I also know a letter of intent is not a contract. Oh, <laughs> you know, of course so not. Of course they, not. They may be sending it to numerous other schools. Right. Yeah. And I'm, update letters are, are viewed as letters of intent, right? Um, you know, I will accept an update from okay. someone who's interviewed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, post interview, they can submit, and I tell them that's part of their orientation when when I meet with them on my my Thursdays or when Val meets with them on her Fridays. Um, other than that, uh, I don't track anything. So yeah. if someone says, here's some information uh, I've applied, I, I will tell them I have a standard email now that I send. Thank you very much. But unfortunately, we're, you know, we're not able to retain this. But if you're invited to an interview, you'll be given information as to how you may upload the information. Because I want to go to one person because that person will keep it. You know, she's the repository of all updates. And I'm afraid if they send it to me or to someone else that it, we won't know. Uh, mm -hmm. But and we only do it for those people we've invited to interview. And yeah, that makes sense. That makes Otherwise, sense. then I will. I mean, keep in mind seven thousand. You know. So. Yeah, I know you couldn't. You couldn't do it. Couldn't That's do right. It. Exactly. I I at this time of year, it's today. It's October twentieth. This this show is going to end in uh, air rather in, in November. But at this time of year, I almost always get calls frequently from parents, less so from than from the applicants themselves. And the call goes something like this. And indeed, you know about. Three weeks ago, I got this call from a father, and the father was, my son applied to 20-something schools, top schools, he has great stats, high MCAT, high GPA, He's, he, you know, he, he has clinical, he has research, you know, everything. Everything looks great, but I ha we haven't heard anything. Right. What should I do? Should, should we start preparing for next year? Should he uh, apply to additional schools? You know, this kind of thing. Well, so, yeah, so anyway, in this case, in this particular case, and this happens every year and it almost always goes the same way. I'll tell them, look, I get these calls every year and they usually go like this. You got to wait. You just have to wait. Okay. If the school doesn't accept letters of intent, I would just wait because I get these calls every year. And usually if I follow up a couple of weeks later or a month later, they'll have had gotten interview invitations. So sure enough, with this particular call, um, same thing, all right, I'll wait. I'll talk to my son and, and I'll wait. Two weeks later, I get another email from the parent. I, I, I don't wanna wait anymore. I want, I want him to apply to additional schools. What can I, what can I do? So at this point I said, okay, here, here's what you can do. Right. Well, and, I, and then, and then I got, subsequently I got a letter before they could do it, no, then I got another letter. The son didn't, didn't want to do it. <laughs> so the son didn't want to do it. The parent didn't have access to the records. So nothing happened. And then I got a letter. He got two invitations to interview. So. Well, two things I was going to mention, Linda. Okay. One is that we tell them, not every medical school is, has the same process. You know, there are some schools that will encourage an early application. Absolutely. Some really encourage updates. Encourage it. You're, no, you're absolutely right. We're not one of them. Right. And, and because I'm basing it on historical data, you know, I can I can point to where we see 
uh, the application process and the, the, the influx of, of candidates and so forth. So why would I go out with more offers early in the process when I know that I'm going to see some great folks later uh, as well? So we don't, uh, first of all, we don't get the verified application until any other year. The last Friday in June this year was a little different, of course. Yes, a little. <laughs> Ten days later, I think, this year. But uh, normally it's, you know, the last Friday in June. We would take a couple of days and then send them access to our secondary. And we use the AMCAS secondary now through WebAdmit. Mm -hmm. um, and um, but we may not start reviewing applications until, well, first of all, I'm, I'm the guinea pig. So I review it to make sure that everything new that we put in is working. And that, that means I'm reading probably 30, 40, 50 applications before I tell the screeners, okay, let's have a meeting to talk about what yeah. in the, the plans for this year. So uh, normally we don't start reviewing applications as a, as a committee until uh, mid to late July. This year, I think it was late July, beginning of August. Interviews, we, we were right on time with interviews. We were actually in our ninth week of interviews, Linda. So Whoa. Was, I, know. I was shocked when I talked to some of my, my colleagues, you know, that they were a couple of weeks ago, some of them were in their third week of interviews, you know, and we were you know, already- Some of them started, deliberately started late. Yes, they did. And, and we saw no reason to, because mm -hmm. we were, because of all the changes, we wanted to start small and figure out where we could go wrong, you know, and you can only do that when you're starting small. Sure. And it was small, trust me. But that's okay uh, because we saw what the bumps were, you know. And now we're in week nine. Our students have, uh, our interviews have told me uh, this has uh, been it's been an unbelievably smooth process for them because we figure out who to put where and what and the times. And we expanded our interview times. Um, typically, if you were on campus, you would only be interviewing two, three, two, two forty-five or three thirty. You, know, we, you can interview now anywhere from nine to four o'clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, this much is more flexible. Much more flexible because we have students. I'm, I'm shocked. I have students from who are clearly in Berkeley, California, who are interviewing <laughs> at nine. And they said, well, I have classes later, and this is great because I'm not missing a class, you know. Right, but, right. I'm an early riser. I'm like, well, you know, good for you. Yeah, so, really. So, 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 you know, to get back to your question, we, patience. Is rewarded, you know. Um, it's a long process. I I have a timeline on our, our website, and I want them to stick to remind uh, students that it is a six month process for us as well. And there are students I may not review until early December or even January, and they're still invited to interview. Of course. And it, it says nothing about their quality. It's just you know it, we go in the order in which their file is processed. Um, but we don't over admit, so they shouldn't worry about that. Um, you know, it, I think there's only been three times where Hopkins had a little sweat about, you know, the process. One was before I got there in 1999. <laughs> that was a long ago. When they first became an AMCAS school, because prior to that, they were not an AMCAS school. They used to accept just your SATs or ACTs or GREs. And then uh -huh. to be a member of AMCAS, you had to require the MCAT. They went from... Um, approximately 3,000 applications to 7,000 in one year. Yeah. Whoa, so, whoa, then, whoa, whoa. I know, I, it's just that's incredible. Insane. But then, um, well, that, that's because you knew, you know, you had to make an extra effort at that time to apply. Yeah, yeah, you know? sure. That's, that's the, uh, the, 
you know, the idea of the common application is that it makes it easier. It does it make is, it easier, it but not easier, but it, it, it creates this kind of frenzy and froth. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and that's what we see. And then the students talk themselves even further into the frenzy thinking, yeah, oh, if I don't get in it, it's because I didn't apply. I waited until it was August 1st. I'm like, and there's some people who should wait, by the way, until September or yeah. October to apply. I, I'm constantly telling people, apply when you are your strongest. And if that means uh, you had to wait because you're taking summer courses, typically, or you ha were having a summer experience that would really enrich your application profile in terms of your clinical exposure, your leadership, your research possibly, um, and you wanna be able to talk about that in the AMCAS application, particularly since we don't take updates, then wait. Right. And there are students who, who are smart enough to figure that out and really benefit from that. What about waiting a whole year and doing a gap year or two? I, I have no problem with that. I, I, my guess is, I mean, and I do look at this from time to time, over 50% of our students have had at least a year off um, before applying. But I, what I don't want them to do is feel that they are disadvantaged unless they take a year off. Right. You know, I, I've right. talked to our own undergraduates and they'll say, yes, but you know, I'm planning to take a year off. And I say, why? Well, because my um, counselor thinks I will be a stronger candidate. And, and I'm thinking, you've done everything, you know, X, Y, and Z, and we look for X, Y, and Z. You're, you've got a, you know, a competitive MCAT score already, competitive GPA already. You've been a campus leader. You've, you've spent every summer doing research and you have um, significant clinical exposure. What more do you need? Right, right. And I, the, yeah, I can't get that message out often enough, though. Yeah, I guess it's, there's no magic formula is the bottom That's line. right. And there's no one size fits all yeah. for every medical yeah. school. Right. Now, we've kind of skirted around this, but obviously COVID has affected every corner of our lives, including medical school admissions. Mm -hmm. And medical school applicants are sometimes anxious, to put it mildly, about, um, <laughs> about not having taken the MCAT early, applying late. I think you've kind of addressed that a little bit and saying apply when you're, when you're ready. Um, some are concerned about science classes having been moved online or to pass fail, you know, um, you know or, the, or they're having trouble getting the clinical exposure that is so important for medical students. It, it is, and, and yet two things, Linda. One is yeah. in, in terms of uh, what happened this past spring when it just came to a screeching halt in, right. uh, in terms of the, um, the uh, educational industry and what we were doing, you know. Uh, we, you know, we, we've never really prohibited pass-fail. We said that, you know, you have to have a conventional grading system. And someone said to me, oh, well, that pass-fail isn't conventional. Well, yes, it is. Well, we accept that. What I, what I was talking about were those students who go to the, the, the rare colleges, and I think one definitely used to be out on the West Coast, and you'll probably know which one I'm talking about. They use narratives instead of, you know, letter grades or even pass-fail. Yeah, 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 so I know which one that is. Yeah, you know which ones I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, both have been around long enough, you know, so yeah. that's, that's what we're talking about when we say, you know, that, that that's not enough. Right. Um, but past though, we can work with that. And certainly this year, we had to work with it and we have no problem. I even put that out on my website yeah. um, ages ago. What we, one of the other changes we had to make this year is we never accepted uh, online courses 
for the prerequisites. It, you know, I had to update the, the uh, MSAR repeatedly because we do accept it now. You know, yeah, again, sure, yeah, sure. who knows? Uh, maybe that also explains a huge spike in our number of applications. But in some cases, that wasn't even approved in, until uh, late July, early August. So it was after when people had applied in many cases. Um, you know, we've had to be flexible. They need to be flexible. And that includes understanding that they may not have the, the meaningful, deep uh, clinical experience this year. What I want to know is, well, what did you do pre-pandemic? All right. I, I'm not saying they have to have a thousand hours of volunteering at Sinai Hospital, Cedar Sinai Hospital. But I, you know, <laughs> you do like. <laughs> oh yeah, I do. Are you kidding? But I, you know, I'm looking for some indication that they had some interactions with patients prior to that. Um, and there are some opportunities. You know, one of the things I, I talked with a group back in the early summer. I said, well, you know, states need people to do contact tracing. I'm seeing that now from applicants. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I think fantastic. Yes, that, that, there are opportunities. There are also hotlines. Oh, hotlines? I mean, right. Right. And I think they need to, if anything, it's for students to think outside the box. Because it's forced everybody to think outside the box. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't have to be holding a patient's hand to have patient interaction. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. True. On a forward-looking note, what advice would you give to med school applicants thinking ahead and planning to apply in 2021 for 2022 matriculation or later? Well, first of all, plan to, you know, to get back to the question. I think, first of all, I think AMCAS, the WMC did a wonderful job with the MCAT. You know, there were people who were like, oh, well, it's just terrible. They keep canceling. They added numerous dates and times. They were being offered at six, 12, and six. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. and I think if that isn't, wasn't an effort. In fact, Linda, out of our almost 7,000 applicants, only 74 don't have an MCAT score. Really? Yeah. Huh. That is remarkable. Yeah. And that's data from the, from, uh, the AAMC. So how are they, are their applications being processed? Or no, what's... of course not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but uh, because I say we require the MCAT. Right. And right. I, I moved by a couple of weeks to date the deadline by which they needed to, to take the um, okay. MCAT examination. But what I'm not doing is moving it to, you know, um, January. We're almost done at that point. That's right. a week before. Yeah. So... And, you know, they turned around, um, they, they sped up the turnaround time for score reporting from four weeks to two weeks. So I think, you know, that was terrific. Going forward, I think those students, um, and AMCAS has probably learned, all right, sign up for earlier dates. If they're canceled, you still have time to take them. Because uh, they, they, you know, I, I, I'm not even sure if there'll be a problem, but certainly uh, anticipate that there may be a need to sign up and take the, be prepared to take the MCAT. A little earlier and 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 to take it if if need be a second time a little earlier rather than wait until august um or september but um so that's one thing i think they they um should also plan on i mean we're planning we assume that we're, we're thinking about two different processes one that's going to be in person and we're still thinking about a virtual one you know, okay so, um and I won't start thinking solely about an in-person process. 
uh, interview process until I know that there's a vaccine and that all that stuff people have taken it. So frankly, I, I'm thinking we're in the 2021 cycle now, right? Right. I'm thinking 2022 may still look like this. It may not be until 2023. And even then, it may look different than it did prior to 2021 because there are some things that we're doing now that we weren't able to do before. You know, <laughs> students uh, clearly aren't being disadvantaged by having to travel somewhere. Right, right, right. right. Uh, offering interviews throughout the day on Thursdays and Fridays instead of afternoons only means that our, our faculty are kind of like it. I've got, I mean, I, when I'm old school, I still print out the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I print the papers here too. <laughs> oh, okay, you do too. But I know I'm gonna talk to someone who's in their 20s and say, why did you print it? <laughs> but I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight interviewers this Thursday. Normally I might have five people interviewing. Right, right. And now so I've got eight. Some of them are only doing one, but hey, that helps, you know. Sure. Sure. And one person has started at nine o'clock. Um, and I, I remember admitting her as a student and now she's on faculty and has been <laughs> several years. It's just, it's mind boggling. Um, some people were interviewing till four o'clock. Right. Well, that's, that is something. All right. It's given us flexibility, frankly. Yes. Yeah. And I don't think, I think Zoom everything is, is like, you know, you have to hear with it, but it does enable some things that you couldn't do before. And or right. you could do it, but at a much lower cost. Yeah, because we were doing, we were doing Skype. Yes. Now, that's something you haven't heard in a while, probably. <laughs> we were doing Skype interviews. Typically, though, the people who were doing Skypes were on um, scholarships, uh, fellowships, and so forth right. out, out of the country, you know, and they were in England. Uh, I, I, you said you have a, a child in, in Israel? Right. Mm -hmm. I, I I've interviewed students in Israel, yeah. in South Korea, you know, China. Yeah. Uh, we can do that now, too, but, uh, but they're part of a group, whereas it was an individual. Um, so we do have group exercises for them. Right. right. They're, they're actually interacting with our current medical students on two, possibly three different occasions as, as part of the process. Is that and, part of the interview process? Oh, absolutely. Well, mm -hmm. the, the, it depends. The greeters program is voluntary. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, but that's where they're going to hear from first and second year students. It's all off the record. I, you know, unless someone says something really stupid, I should right. know anything about it. Right. Right. Um, the meeting with our underrepresented students is all off the record, and that's voluntary, by the way. The afternoon sessions with our fourth years, who are members of the admissions committee, and one of them may be your interviewee, uh, interviewer. Sure. Um, you, you know, that's all on the record. <laughs> the, right, that can right, be for sure. <laughs> committee meeting. And years ago, I mean, literally years ago, I used to tell the students, "Be on your best behavior." Um, in that interaction in person with our students. And I thought, you know, they should be anyway. I mean, I don't need to tell them that. Well, I like to tell, I, I personally tell applicants, every interaction you have when you go for an interview day, whether it's with the janitor or the receptionist or the students or the interviewer, right. is food for feedback. It, it, that's absolutely right. And, and I, I mean, I can tell you, I recently had an encounter with someone who didn't realize that they'd been interacting with me and really, you know, this is an exchange of email because I, I answer emails left and right. I mean, yeah, sure. I've answered every email 
since I started at the medical school. Oh my goodness, that's quite a record. Through my secondary account. I don't yeah. put my name on it necessarily. Right. And right. I have other people who may answer some of them. If I'm not sure, I'll forward them you know, to the registrar's office, things like that. Um, but I have seen some rather shocking behavior. And then the person applies and lo and behold, they got an interview. I'm like, well, you know, I've got this. Yeah, and it's I have to say, uh, I, and this matters. Yeah it's, you, yeah, it's how you act when people aren't looking at you. Right, right. I I heard a story. This is uh, my kids' high school. Uh, a woman had endowed a small gift in on, in memory of her mother. The mother had been a, a PhD in scientist in the 1950s, and one day she was interviewing somebody, and she was standing at the file cabinet filing something away. Yeah, physical file cabinets in it. Right. Yes, and I she happened that. to be, and she happened to be obviously pregnant. So she's standing at the file cabinet filing something somebody away, and the interviewee comes in and says, uh, sees her and says, Could you please get me a cup of coffee? This is 1950s. And she says, Sure, no problem. And she goes and she gets him a cup of coffee. She gets herself a cup of coffee. And then she and he sit, sat down on the on the guest side of the desk. And then she says, Here's your cup of coffee. And she goes around and she sits down on the other side of the desk and says, Hello, I'm so, Dr. So-and-so. Nice to meet you. And <laughs> She's, the daughter said the guy almost fell off his chair. Oh, okay. You don't know. Well, I, and that was in the 50s. I mean, I, I can tell you some stories. You know, that's the one thing that we're not getting necessarily when they interact with live people and how they, they uh, do with our staff, but also with the interviewers. Uh, you know, I, I remember a, a committee member saying, you know, we have interview rooms which we're not using right now obviously but we have interview rooms set up with a table and two chairs uh, matching chairs and um, but we always put the student chair here and the faculty on this side and we had a student bring his chair and sit right next to the faculty member and the faculty member said what are you doing I said well i'm going to, i thought it was important that we be close she said get back over there yeah <laughs> told the admissions committee about that of course that wasn't that long ago, you know. No, no, no. What would you have liked me to ask you? Um, that's a that's an excellent question. I I think. Or what would you like to close with? Well, I'd like to close with people that um, we're interested in all kinds of students at Hopkins. There, as I said, you know, there are no cutoffs in terms of scores or anything. We we want people we think will uh, take advantage of the educational opportunities that exist at Hopkins. And we can only get a sense of that if you've done that as an undergraduate. Okay. Um, you don't have to be perfect because gosh knows we're not perfect. You know. But it, we need to hear from your recommenders, for instance, who say this is someone who's made a real effort to learn and apply that learning to others and improving things. That's the kind of person I think will, will flourish at Hopkins. Um, I'd also like people to realize how important it is for Hopkins and all of medicine, but especially for Hopkins, that there be collaboration with students. Um, there are two things that I tell people are really define the kind of student who succeeds at Hopkins. Um, the one who is accustomed to collaborating with others, other students or faculty, because they, they treat the faculty treat the students as you know, junior faculty, you know, we want to teach you, so you're going to succeed and take over from us. And the other thing is, um, 
what helps our students to stand out is their entrepreneurial spirit. And I mean that in the best sense of the word. I mean, they really are creative and dynamic and coming um, to decisions as, as in a group setting. And I think if people think of Hopkins that way, that may dispel anything they may think of or have heard of 30, 40 years ago. Because I have to tell you, Linda, I mean, I've been with, well, I've been with the medical school, affiliated with the medical school, it feels like forever, but going on 21 years. Yeah. And I remember in our discussions early on, I'm thinking, okay, where's the uptight, whatever. We didn't see them. Part of that is because we, the screeners do a pretty good yeah. job of weeding that out, you know. Right, right. Out of an application. But we know that the students who succeed at Hopkins are the ones who are accustomed to working with other people. Well, medicine is a team sport at this point. It's a team sport. It's so different than it was 40 years ago when, uh, you know, I'm the doctor and I make all the best decisions. Really? You know, people hear that now and they think that's what, what a bizarre thing to say. And yet I want to check, check it on the internet first. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right, right. No, but, you know, I, I think if people realize that at, at Hopkins, it's about being a member of a team. Yeah. Or someone, one of our committee members, and I wrote it down, she's the, actually, she's on a, the admissions committee, but she's also the head of curriculum. And she said, you know, medicine is a team sport. <laughs> so, yes, I hear that. I hear that a lot. Paul, I want to thank you so much. I think we're almost out of time, and I might even have gone over a little bit. I want to thank you again for joining me and sharing your expertise. I know you're extremely busy. This has been just delightful. Where can listeners learn more about Johns Hopkins School of Medicine? Well, if they go to our website, we still use the website, and uh, it is <laughs> www.hopkinsmedicine, one word, hopkinsmedicine.org forward slash admissions. Okay, great. We'll include links in the show notes, except.com slash 392 to Johns Hopkins Medical's website, as well as to other resources that might be helpful to listeners. This is the Mission Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I'm your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>